Well, there was a cowboy and he was applying for insurance. And the insurance agent asked the cowboy, have you ever had any accidents? No, the cowboy replied, I haven't had any accidents at all. But a steer once kicked me in the ribs and broke two of my ribs and a rattlesnake bit me on the ankle once. You don't call those accidents, asked the insurance agent. Oh, no, said the cowboy. I think they did it on purpose. (laughs) You know, I was thinking about that, and it's, you know, not that funny. Obviously, you didn't laugh, you know, so. You know, I don't write them. I keep trying to tell you that. But I was thinking about with this cowboys, you know, I said, we could use more honesty like that in this country, couldn't we? You know, it's nice to have, it's kind of refreshing to have that kind of honesty. And so this morning as we continue our study in the book of Revelation, I have entitled the message, The Unleashing. The Unleashing. Father, I thank you for all that's transpired up to this moment. And now, Lord, it's, it's time to look at your word and what your word has for us. And so I just ask, Holy Spirit, that you would fall upon us in a powerful way, that you would certainly fill me up, that I would truly speak your words accurately and clearly, because, Lord, I am more and more convinced that your words always bring life. And we've come here this morning not to hear a man. We've come here this morning to meet the living God. And I pray if there's anyone here that does not know you, they will meet you now in an intimate way. So I cry out again, come Holy Spirit, glorify and exalt Jesus in these next few moments and minutes. And I just thank you for what you're going to do. And I just praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Four horsemen of the apocalypse. Most of us have a familiarity with them and we meet them. Revelation in chapter 6. So if you have your Bibles, if you have your owner's manual, turn with me to the book of Revelation chapter 6. I really recommend you bring your Bibles, you mark it up. Again, I don't think there's any more important book in our time than the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 6, verse 1, I watched as the Lamb opened the first of the seven seals. Then I heard one of the four living creatures say in a voice like thunder, Come. I looked, and there before me was a white horse. Its rider held a bow, and he was given a crown, and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Sometime... I believe in the near future, Jesus will open this first seal of the scroll. And when Jesus opens this first seal of the scroll, what you are going to see is God taking back planet Earth. Remember, the scroll represents the title deed to the Earth, which really Satan in many ways has been the owner of. The book of Revelation is about God taking ownership back of the Earth. And when Jesus opens that first seal, he will usher in the final seven years of this epoch of time. It will commence with the opening of that first seal. The Bible calls it by various names, this final seven-year period. It's called the tribulation. It's also called Daniel's 70th week. It's also been called the day of the Lord. It's also called the time of Jacob's trouble. And you need to know, 
that God is on the throne. That's why we looked at Revelation chapter 4 and 5. No matter what you see taking place here on planet Earth, no matter about the chaos that you see happening on planet Earth, God is on the throne and he is in control of human history. And all of human history is running to one single point and we see that single point in the book of Philippians chapter 2 when the apostle Paul writes these famous words. It's a great portion to read, but he writes at one point in time that Jesus Christ will be exalted to the highest place. He is given a name that is above every other name. Now watch this, that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. That includes the demonic world. And every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All of human history, the book of Revelation is finally about how God brings everything under submission to the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what you see happening. The first seal, by the way, commences the opening of that seven-year period, this last epoch of time in human history. And we are told that when Jesus opens that first seal, we find a writer on a white horse. And the obvious question is, who is this rider on a white horse? And some people believe that it's Jesus himself. I believe that answer is actually wrong. The reason why is because we see Jesus coming on the scene in Revelation in chapter 19. So I do not believe that it is Jesus. Now, Jesus in Revelation chapter 19 is also riding a white horse, and I believe that creates some of the confusion and whatnot. But I believe the rider on the white horse in Revelation chapter 6 is a cheap imitation of Jesus Christ. The apostle John calls him the Antichrist. Anti, by the way, means in place of or against. And I believe both of these things will be true of the Antichrist. When the Antichrist comes, when Jesus opens that first seal and he is unleashed, he will attempt to supplant himself. He will attempt to replace Jesus. And he will demand if you do not worship him, he will begin to persecute you if you worship Jesus and do not worship him. Now, there's two things to note about the Antichrist in the two verses that we looked at. The first one is this. It says that he has a bow, but he has no arrows note. Now, anytime anyone has a bow, what it really tells you is that their true motivation is conquest. The Antichrist will be bent on world conquest, but he's going to appear as a man of peace. And he's actually going to fool many people. He will no doubt win the Nobel Peace Prize. The Antichrist, in fact, is going to do something that no one has been able to do up to this point in human history. He is actually going to broker a peace deal between Israel and her enemies. He is going to, one day you're going to see a headline, so-and-so brokers peace in the Middle East, and he will win the Nobel Peace Prize for that. We're told, in fact, this in Daniel chapter 9 and verse 27, 2,500 years ago, the Hebrew prophet Daniel predicted that a man would come one day in the end of days and he would broker peace in the Middle East between Israel and her enemies. Now, no, part, no doubt part of this peace treaty will involve Israel being able to rebuild the third temple. Now, there's a slight problem with that, at least as many perceive it. And Skip, can you put that picture up? There you see the Dome of the Rock. The Dome of the Rock is built right there in Jerusalem on what is known as the Temple Mount. 
The Dome of the Rock, by the way, is the third most holy site in Islam. And according to Islamic tradition, the prophet Muhammad was taken to heaven by the angel Gabriel on a horse at that very spot where you see the Dome of the Rock. And that's why it is considered a very, very holy spot. And many believe that right where you see the Dome of the Rock was where the second Jewish temple was built. It's called the Herodian Temple. And so you can see that there would be a problem then if the Jews are going to, in fact, be able to rebuild their temple. How can they do it if the Dome of the Rock is right there? Interestingly enough, there's been a lot of study done recently about where exactly was the Herodian temple, the Jewish temple, built. Much study has been done not only in the Bible, but in archaeology. And it has been determined by many, by actually a fair number of people, that the Jewish temple, the Herodian temple, was not actually built where the Dome of the Rock is, but was actually built in what is now known as the ancient city of David called Zion in the Bible. Skip, can you put that picture up for us for a moment? So look, you can see in this map, you can see the Dome of the Rock way up there in the corner. And then you can see, see, that's the ancient city of David. Old Testament called it Zion. And it's said that actually the Herodian temple, the second temple, was built in the ancient city of David or Zion. So you can see how the two could actually coexist now together. Wouldn't that be incredible? The Antichrist not only brokers a peace treaty between Israel and her enemies, but he makes it so that it is possible for the Jewish temple to coexist with the Dome of the Rock. And you have two of the great religions of the world, Islam and Judaism, coexisting together. I believe that is going to happen, and I believe the Antichrist is going to make that happen. Now, some of you might be wondering about a thing called the Western Wall. Skip, can you put that up? A lot of us are familiar with the Western Wall. And, you know, down through the centuries, the Jews, for the most part, have believed that what you see there, the Western Wall, is the final remnant, the last remnant of the Second Temple, the Herodian Temple. In fact, you see the faithful every day walking up to the Western Wall, and they have a piece of paper. And on that piece of paper, you know what they write? They write God, but in Hebrew, they write Yahweh, and they leave out several of the consonants because the name is so holy, it should not be pronounced or written down. And then they stick it. You can see the cracks between the stones, and they stick it in there, and they're waiting for God. They're waiting for their Messiah to come. Now, I've always been troubled, actually, by the Western Wall, and I'll tell you why I'm troubled by the Western Wall. I believe that this book here that I'm holding, now, there are all kinds of Bibles, But I believe in my heart of hearts, when I became born again, I don't know, there was just something that this book here, cover to cover, I believe is the inspired word of God. There is no doubt in my mind, every single word is the inspired word of God. And you go, well, where are you going with this? I'll show you in a moment. But I'm so big on the inspiration of scripture. And someone says, well, how do you defend the inspiration of scripture? It's very simple. This Bible, by the way, rises or falls on Jesus Christ. Do you realize that the Old Testament is about Jesus and the New Testament is about Jesus? So it rises or falls on Jesus. And Jesus said that I am your God. I am God in the flesh. And he said, I will prove it by rising from the dead. And that's a very provable thing, by the way. And we've done that on numerous occasions on Easter Sunday. Now, let me tell you this. If Jesus is, in fact, very God, he said this is his book. 
Don't you think that Jesus can make sure that he gets his book right? I mean, that's just a logical, no, really. I mean, see, if Jesus really is God, Jesus says this is his book. Don't you think he'll make sure he gets his book right? Jesus says that truth is paramount. Jesus says you shall know the truth, you shall walk in the truth, and then you'll be in freedom. That's how important knowing truth is. So I believe that these words that you have here are inspired. You say, well, why are you making such a big deal about that? Well, the reason why I'm making a big deal about that is because of Matthew chapter 24. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter 24. And in Matthew chapter 24, we have what is known as the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse is called that because Jesus gave that teaching on the Mount of Olives. And in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus gives his account, his understanding of the end of days in very broad brushstrokes and what is going to happen. And he begins the Olivet Discourse, uh, you know, uh, with these rather ominous words. So if you have your Bibles, you can turn with me to Matthew chapter 24 and verse 1. I want to remind you that when Jesus spoke these words, it was, he was in his final week. He was also in the very city of Jerusalem when he spoke these words, and he was standing right next to the Jewish temple. And he says to his disciples, Jesus left the temple and was walking away when his disciples came up to him and said, uh, called his attention to these buildings, meaning the temple and the temple buildings. And they said, do you see all these things, he asked, Jesus asked. I tell you the truth. Now watch this. Not one stone here will be left on another. Every one of them will be thrown down. Now, you know, Jesus just could have said, you know, boys, the, the Romans are going to come and they're just going to demolish the temple. But he doesn't say that. Skip, can you put up the picture for a moment? That next picture is coming right up. There you are. That is a model of the Herodian temple, what we call the second temple. Now, you see those bricks? I was actually studying it. This is fascinating. Do you realize that those bricks are anywhere from two tons to 400 tons? Two tons to 400 tons. Those aren't small things. And Jesus said, now I want you to get, he said not one brick, not one stone will be upon another. I mean, words mean something. And and we have to understand that. So Jesus is putting himself out there. He said that thing is going to be completely and totally destroyed. Now, the question is, when you look at the Western Wall, people say that the Western Wall is actually part of the second temple. It's part of the Herodian temple. So my question is, did Jesus get it wrong? I don't think Jesus got it wrong. In fact, it's very interesting if you study history, there's a man by the name of Josephus. Josephus is a Jewish historian, and Josephus was actually an eyewitness to the destruction of the entire city of Jerusalem. Here's what Josephus said. He said, when the Romans finally breached the walls surrounding Jerusalem, and it took them two years, so they were mad. When they finally broke through, they began to torch the entire city. But you know one one place they didn't torch or destroy? The fortress of Antonia. The fortress of Antonia was their major fort, their major presence in Jerusalem. And I believe that Jesus didn't get it wrong at all. If Skip went back to the Western Wall, I don't know if he can do that. It's very interesting. I believe what the Western Wall is, is part of the retaining walls of the fortress of Antonia, the Roman fort. You know why? There's no scorch marks on those stones. 
Now, here's what Josephus said. He said when they broke through, they lit all of Jerusalem on fire, except the fortress of Antonia, but they certainly lit the Jewish temple on fire. In fact, Skip, can you put that picture up? In fact, the fire was so hot, Josephus said, of the Herodian temple, the second Jewish temple, that it literally burned. It melted all of the gold and all of the silver in the Jewish treasury, and it literally seeped into the foundation cracks in the stones. And once the fire was over and everything cooled down and yet all of these charred stones left, you know what those Roman soldiers did? They took, Josephus says it, you can read, he said, they took those huge massive stones Brick by brick, charred stone by charred stone, down so they could get the gold and the silver. I think Jesus got it exactly right. And that is why there is no record, there is no evidence, by the way, of the second Jewish temple, the Herodian temple, because they completely and totally demolished it. And I think the Antichrist, when he comes on the scene, is going to show that and prove that. And you'll be able to see the Jewish temple, I believe, coexisting with the Dome of the Rock. Now, very quickly, let's go to Revelation chapter 6 and verse 2. And we see that the Antichrist not only has a bow, but it's said that he also is wearing a crown. The Greek word used there is Stephanos. Stephanos. And it means a victor's crown. Interestingly enough, we're told this in Revelation chapter 19. Skip, can you put that up? Revelation chapter 19 and verses 11 and 12. This is about Jesus now. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse, whose rider is called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and makes war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. Notice Jesus has many crowns on his head, and the Antichrist only had one crown on his head. The Greek word, like I said, for the crown that the Antichrist wears is Stephanos. The Greek word for the many crowns that Jesus wears is diadema. Different word. And you know what diadema stands for? It stands for a crown that a king, royalty wears. It's a golden crown. On the other hand, the Antichrist wears a Stephanos. Skip, can you put up the picture? A Stephanos, by the way, it's called the victor's crown, was given to a runner in the ancient games who won a race. And then they placed upon him the victor's crown or the Stephanos crown. And you know what it was made of? It was just made of, yeah, it was just made of leafy twigs and they kind of intertwined them together to form a crown. You know what it looked like after a couple days? A bunch of dead leaves and twigs. And it showed that the victor, the victory was short-lived. And I believe the reason why the Antichrist is given a Stephanos, a victor's crown, is because his victory, his conquering is going to be short-lived. He's only going to be the emperor of the world for a very, very short period of time. And you know, as I thought about this, I had to think about my own life, and I really want you to think about your life. I had to think about how do I spend my money and how do I spend my time? You know, those are the two most valuable commodities that we all have, our time and our money. And I thought to myself, self, do you spend your money, do you spend your time on those things that are short-lived, that just have a short shelf life? Do you spend your time and your money for the most part on things that are ultimately going to be buried and forgotten in the sands of eternity? You know, and it was a pretty convicting question for myself. 
And then, you know, the Holy Spirit brought up to my mind about delayed gratification. And I, I think about delayed gratification, and I don't know about you, but I, I've noticed in the American culture, we have problems with delayed gratification. You ever notice that? And you remember several years ago, I talked to you about the marshmallow test? Skip, can you put that picture up? The marshmallow test was actually made famous in the early 60s by a name by the professor by the name of Walter Mischel. He was a professor at Stanford University. And what he did was he took four-year-olds, four-year-olds like that little girl. He brought them into a room. And when they came into the room, there was just a table and there was just a chair. And then they, he put a marshmallow right there on the table. Now, the child was told that they could eat the marshmallow right away or if they could wait 20 minutes. They could have two marshmallows. And Mishkel said it was kind of hilarious as to how these kids, how they attempted to do everything possible not to eat the marshmallows. Some of them put their hands over their eyes like this. Then he said some of them actually stroked the marshmallow like it was a pet. I don't know if that helped or not. My favorite one was this. This is kind of a little boy after my own heart. He actually picked up the marshmallow and then he licked the table where the marshmallow had been. Somehow believing that the flavor had transmogrified into the wood. I don't know what he was thinking there. But here's what Mishkel found out. Now, this is what's intriguing about this test. Mishkel found out, and only 30% of the children, by the way, could show any kind of restraint. Most of the children wanted instant satisfaction. Only 30% couldn't. But the 30% who could delay gratification, he said they fared better in life. He said, for example, they scored higher on the SAT. They had higher educational attainment. They were less likely to be addicted to drugs and alcohol, and they tended to be more well-adjusted socially. And my point is this. Listen to this now. Satan will always tempt you. Satan will always tempt me with the short-lived thing, the thing that brings the quickest satisfaction but is devoid of eternal gain and glory. Satan is always going to tempt you, and he's going to tempt me with the short-lived thing that will bring quick satisfaction, but it is devoid of gain and it is devoid of glory. Satan will give you 15 minutes in the sun. He will give you 15 minutes of glory. But we don't understand the cost. The cost is an eternity of loss. God's way, I want you to know this morning. God's way is always narrow. It is never easy, but it is destined for great glory. God's way is always narrow, it is never easy, but it is always, always destined for great glory. Now very quickly, what follows the opening of the first seal is logical. Watch this now, we are told this in Revelation chapter 6, starting at verse 3. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. Then another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth and to make men slay each other. To him was given a large sword. The second horse, the fiery red one, is war. You see, the Antichrist is going to tell you that he's a man of peace, but what he can't take through subterfuge and deception, he's going to take through force in war. You know, it's very interesting. This has happened before. There was a man by the name of Adolf Hitler. Adolf Hitler said, I am a man of peace. I just want peace. I want peace for Germany. But what he was bent on was world conquest. And what Hitler could not get through, subterfuge and deception, he eventually turned to war. And he began to take it by war. The Antichrist will be the same way. And then watch what happens when we have war. Verse 5, when the lamb opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come. 
I looked and there before me was a black horse. That's famine, by the way. Its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. Then I heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a day's wages and three quarts of barley for a day's wages. That is a picture, by the way, of inflation. You are going to have demand far outstripping the supply, creating a huge, huge price increase. Now watch this, though. But it says, and do not damage the oil and the wine. You know who the oil and the wine usually represents? The rich. It's interesting. Even though there's going to be famine in various places in the world, the rich are going to be okay. It's just going to be a speed bump because they have enough money to survive this thing. Then it says this, verse 7. When the lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider's name was Death. And Hades was following close behind him. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by a sword, salmon, plague, famine, plague, and it says wild beast. By the way, wild is not in the Greek. Just the word beast is. And by the way, every time beast is used in the book of Revelation, it refers to the Antichrist and the false prophets. So that's who I think it refers to here. And it said they will be killed by the false prophet and the Antichrist on the earth. And so, you know, it just logically follows. The Antichrist is unleashed. He wants power. He wants glory. He wants people to worship him. He wants world conquest. And what he can't take through peace and peaceful means and deception, he's then going to turn to war. And war is going to lead to famine, and famine is going to lead to death. And now watch this. This is where we end this morning. The fifth seal, verse 9. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe. And they were told to wait a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed as they had been was completed. Skip, can you put up the chart? In this chart, you see the first four seals. Seal number one, seal number two, seal number three, and seal number four. This is what we call the beginning of birth pangs or the time of sorrow. And what you see happening here is these things occur in what we call the first three and a half years of the tribulation. And even though it's going to be a time of turbulence, by and large, this period of time is going to be, uh, you know, a time where you see the Antichrist rising to power. And you're going to see, even though there's tumult, most of it's going to be occurring not where the Antichrist is, which is in the West, but it's going to be occurring where the wars and the famines are taking place and the death. So what I'm saying is it's not going to be a great time of persecution of believers during the first three and a half years. And I believe that the persecution... Uh, a believers isn't going to pick up till the midpoint. So believers are actually, during the first three and a half years, going to have a time to really prepare. 
It's not until the opening of the fifth seal that I just read. That's right at the midpoint uh, of the tribulation. And it begins the great tribulation. And that is when all hell breaks loose. And that is when you begin to see the terror of the Antichrist occur. And we're told this, by the way, in Matthew in chapter 24. Here's how Jesus describes that time. He says this, Matthew 24, verse 15. So when you see standing in the holy place, the abomination that causes desolation, spoken of through the prophet Daniel, let the reader understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let no one on the roof of his house go down to take anything out of the house. Let no one go back to the field to get his cloak. How dreadful it will be in those days for pregnant women and nursing mothers. Pray that your flight will not take place in winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great distress unequal from the beginning of the world until now and never to be equaled again. If those days had not been cut short, no one would survive. Now watch this. But for the sake of the elect, for the sake of the believers, those days will will be shortened. At that time, if anyone says you look here is the Christ or there he is, do not believe it for false Christs and false prophets will appear. And they're going to perform many great signs and miracles to deceive even the elect. The believer, if that were possible, I thank God for that, if it were possible. See, I have told you ahead of time. And what you're going to see here with the opening of the fifth seal, the abomination of desolation occurs. The abomination of desolation is when the Antichrist, he walks into the newly rebuilt Jewish temple and he says to the world, I am your God. And he says to the Jews, I am your Messiah. I am your long-awaited Messiah. And he says, you must worship me. And the way you will worship me is you must take my mark. You must take the mark six. 6-6, six, six, which I believe will be a combination of, of a tattoo with a chip. And the tattoo and the chip will either be your forehead or it will be on the back of your hand. And this, taking this mark 666, six, six, will allow you to buy and sell. It will allow you to get food. It will allow you to enter the newly formed economy. But if you do not take the mark... If you do not take the tattoo and the chip, you will not be able to buy or sell. You will not have food. You will not have a job. And not only that, there will be a bounty placed on your head. But if you do take the mark, we're told later on, then it's over for you. There is no repentance. Once you take the mark, your destiny is an eternity. It says biblically in hell. So let me conclude this morning. Let me give us the challenge. Jesus and John make it clear that when that fifth seal opens up, and we're still going to be here, believers, we are going to be on the planet. We're still going to be here at the fifth seal. I'm absolutely convinced, and I'll show you next week why if you want proof. But they said there's going to be death. Many of us are going to die. And I like what it said, though, in Revelation chapter 6 and verse 9. Do you remember what it said? It said that these believers died. These believers were martyred because of the word of God and because they maintained their testimony. They did not waver in their testimony. In other words, they were willing to stand for the truth and speak the truth. 
I'm going to tell you right now, believers all over the world are being killed for that testimony. You know what that testimony is? Here's the testimony I believe that we're all going to have to give, and it's this. Jesus is the way, not a way. Jesus is the way, the only way. Jesus is the truth, not an a truth, not that truth is relative, not if it's just true for you, but Jesus is the truth. Jesus is the life. He is the only one who can give you life. He is the only one that can give you eternal life. That is the truth that we are going to have to stand on and be willing to speak out. And I want you to know, even now, today, there are people around the earth, and you see them in the Middle East. You see them in China. You see them in Africa. They're willing to stand up and say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And it's costing them their life. And see, the question I have this morning is, will you and will I be willing to do that? In fact, I think it's coming our way, and I think it's already here. You know what I think is going to happen to us? You know what the lightning rod issue of today is? Homosexuality. It's being tested. There's a college called Gordon College not far from here. Did you know that it's being tested there? Gordon College, the president wrote to Barack Obama and said, you know, we are not going to comply with your policy about hiring people who uh, are involved in same-sex marriage. And the surrounding area, the school district, you know what they did to Gordon? They said, we will no longer hire your students to student teach in our school district. Can you? You know what that means? I'll tell you, it's insidious what that means, if if, if that's held. What that's saying is, by the way, if you graduate from a Christian college, now listen to it, it means that a business, if the school district can do this, that it's going to mean that a business can say, oh, I see that you graduated from a Christian college. Where do you stand on homosexuality? And if you say that it is wrong, it's against God's standard, it is a sin, you'll find out that you're not going to be hired because they say, you know, you are preaching hate and you're going to create a negative environment. It's going to come your way. Very soon, I believe in the work environment, you're going to be asked if you work out there, where do you stand on the issue of homosexuality? And it has nothing to do with whether we love homosexuality. Of course I love homosexuality. I love any sinner, by the way. I love any sinner. We're supposed to love any sinner. But... It's wrong to tell someone who's involved in denying and violating their design not to tell them that. And if you sit there and tell them that it is against God's standard, it is against God's design, I believe not only will you not get a promotion, you very well likely could begin to lose your job. Pastors are already under fire. I think if you read about Houston, you've read about these two guys who own a wedding chapel in Colorado. It's coming down, and that is a lightning rod issue. And the question is, will we keep the good faith and the good testimony? No, I stand for Jesus. Jesus is the way. Jesus is the truth. And in Jesus is life and life alone. And here I stand, and I stand on that. And I have a belief. This is what this church is about. This church is about building up believers so that we can stand firm out there. I think as you see things cratering and fear and men and women's knees beginning to quake, and we stand firm and we are able to share fearlessly and in love the hope that's within us, I think we're going to have incredible opportunity if 
our faith is built up. So if you're not part of a small community in a small group, please see me or see Jeff because that's what we're all about. So that at the end, just like these people that you're reading about, just like the people you see now all around the world, that we can stand brightly for Jesus Christ. Father, I just thank you for your word. I thank you for what we see in the scripture. You give us scripture to not only challenge us, but you give scripture so that our faith can be deepened. And I'm praying right now for every single person here. If they don't know you, I pray this morning, right now, as they've read about the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, the true rider of the white horse, that they will place their faith and trust in Jesus. Because ultimately, the book of Revelation is about Jesus wins. (coughs) What incredible hope do we have in that? Jesus wins. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'll begin to speak to those who really haven't stepped over the line and said, Jesus, I know that you died on the cross for my sin. I step over the line now. I step over the line now, and I'm going to place my faith and trust in you. And I know for many of us, as we watch the news and we see what is happening, and we're believers and we stepped over the line, but we begin to see fear creeping up. I pray right now that you're going to breathe a fresh faith and a fresh hope, that you're going to deepen our faith and realize that our hope doesn't lie in this world. It lies with Jesus in eternity, which is forever and ever and ever until never end. And so now, Holy Spirit, breathe. Breathe that fresh faith that fresh hope, that fresh courage into each one of us so that we can make that stand that says Jesus is the way, Jesus is the sole truth, and Jesus is eternal life. And I ask for this in your precious name. Amen.